Let me invite you, church, to open up God's Word with me this morning to the book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, short little uh, book just before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find this text on page 778, I believe, as we look at this, uh, this text, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. I want to begin by posing a question to you uh, for reflection. Uh, how would you describe your worship? How would you describe your worship? You know, it's no secret that Christians and churches often differ over uh, worship styles, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a bad thing, as long as it doesn't become a divisive thing. You know, here at Meadowbrook, we have two different worship gatherings on Sunday morning, and both of those have a different style. But in our Western consumeristic culture, we often evaluate a worship service uh, based on how it made us feel or how much we enjoyed it or on what we perceived uh, that we got out of it. The truth is worship isn't really about style. In fact, worship is not even really about us. It's about God. It's about honoring Him. It's about glorifying Him. It's about exalting His name. It's about giving Him what is due Him. So how would you describe your worship? Are you giving Him what is due Him? We're currently in week two today of a three-week message series titled uh, Gospel Giving. Uh, and ultimately, giving to God, whatever that may be that we give to Him, ultimately giving to Him is an act of worship. And so as we journey into His Word together this morning, we want to gain a more Christ-honoring understanding of worship. We want to get to the heart of worship. In our biblical text for today, uh, the Lord is confronting a people. He's confronting a people who are, who are His people, uh, a people that He has called as His own, but a people whose hearts are not set on Him, uh, a people who are not giving God what is due Him, a people who are misled and misguided and in need of correction. And what a reminder, church, that every time that we open the Word of God, every time that we hear it taught, we ought to stand ready, expecting to be corrected. And it's part of the purpose of God's Word, to instruct us, to correct us, uh, that we might uh, turn in faith to, to Christ and, and follow in His steps and serve Him faithfully. But about 2,500 years ago, God sends a messenger. He sends this guy named Malachi uh, to confront his people. And so let's hear what Malachi uh, has to say. As you find your place in God's Word, let me invite you. Um, as is our practice here at Meadowbrook, to join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's holy word. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. I'll read to the end of the chapter. The Bible reads this way. Malachi writes, he says, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he, would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. 
and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Church, would you bow with me? And Father, we do thank you for your word. We acknowledge this morning that you are a great and mighty God, that you are the Lord God Almighty, and you're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our attentiveness. Father, we pray that you would instruct us now by the presence and power of your Spirit through the preaching of your Word. Guide us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I need to begin this morning by giving... Uh, credit where credit is due and credit to Pastor Robbie Gallaty, who is a pastor up uh, in Tennessee, for I found his particular comments on this passage especially helpful. In fact, I've even leaned uh, a bit on the wording of, of some of the certain key points. Uh, but the book of Malachi was written after uh, the Babylonian exile and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So what does that mean? Perhaps uh, let's go on a, a little journey into history here. Maybe, maybe you remember that, uh, that Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, uh, was invaded and conquered by the Babylonians in about 600 B.C. And shortly thereafter, one of the things that the Babylonians did was they came into Jerusalem, the political and cultural and religious center of the land, and they destroyed the temple. In 586 B.C. And there were several waves, as was often the case in that day, when political and foreign invaders came into a land of taking people, taking captives into exile in a foreign land. Now we fast forward about 50 years to 536 B.C. And a man named Cyrus is king of Persia. And Persia is now the dominant regional power. And this man, this king, Cyrus, allows the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, to return home, those that have been in exile. He allows them to return home and to rebuild their temple and to restore uh, the priestly ministry. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah recount these efforts. And shortly thereafter, the prophets uh, Ezra and Nehemiah come on the scene and they call for revival and reform and the rebuilding of the city's walls, the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And so all that to say, in the context of Malachi, compared to what has gone on in the previous decades, even the previous centuries uh, during periods of the exile, things are looking up. In other words, the building program has been completed The ministry has been restored. Things are looking good in the land. But Israel still lacks a king. But even so, they have resettled in the land. They've rebuilt the temple and secured the mountain city of Jerusalem with walls. Things are looking good externally. But internally, trouble abounds. The people, even the priests, are far from God. 
And so God sends Malachi, his messenger, his prophet to the people. He comes on the scene as the last Old Testament prophet to write. And through Malachi, the Lord God reminds his people that worship is an attitude of the heart. Worship is an attitude of of the heart. Malachi writes in a sermonic style and interrogation and reply style, exposing God's disappointment with his people. He lures them into his sermon with two opening questions from God's perspective. Number one, where is the honor due me? Number two, where is the respect due me? Now, if your boss, if you're working, if your boss came up to you tomorrow morning and uh, confronted you with those questions, you would probably perk up, right? You'd want to know, uh, how have I disrespected you? How have I dishonored you? Perhaps your mind would start racing in an attempt to, to remember what you have said or what you have done and how you can make it right, and particularly so because of who it is you have offended, your boss. And it's the same with God. So here's the Lord saying to Israel, I'm your father. I'm your master. I am the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts, which is why uh, host is a military term, which is why many translations translate this as uh, Lord of armies. In other words, as a father, God has given his children the very best. He's been good to them. He's nurtured them and he's disciplined them. And as a master, he, uh, he expects their obedience. And as the divine general of all armies, he expects their complete and utter allegiance. He calls, he calls for right worship for who he is and for what he has done for his people. And so here's the situation. Although these people are going through the motions of worship, they're gathering at the temple, they're coming to the temple, they're offering sacrifices on the altar, they're singing psalms, no doubt, voicing prayers, giving their tithe. But even so, Malachi says their hearts are far from God. And so their worship is empty, outward ritual, devoid of inward devotion. Now, I wonder if that ever happens in churches today. I wonder if people ever gather in beautiful buildings like this one with hymn books in the pew racks and pulpits on the platform, shaking hands and singing songs and passing plates, but without any real stirring of the heart or bending of the will to praise God. You see, before God accepts your gift, he inspects your heart. Before God accepts your gift, he inspects your heart. Meaning God sees beyond the external. And he peers into our hearts. You see, God knows not only our our thoughts, but he also knows our desires. He knows everything there is to know about us. He knows our attitudes and our activities. And in Malachi's day, the people were bringing God their leftovers. And the priests who were supposed to be facilitating worship at the temple were allowing this to go on. They were allowing it to happen. They were approving dishonorable worship, which is really no worship at all. Now, I'll be honest, I, I, I like leftovers. Some people don't like leftovers. I like leftovers as long as I enjoyed them uh, the first time. But I will make a commitment to you. If I ever have you over at our home for dinner, I'm not going to serve you leftovers. I'm not going to, you'd be an honored guest in our home and I'd want to treat you with hospitality. I'd want to give you something that's befitting for a friend. You see, what I serve you reflects what I think about you. And if I pulled out of the refrigerator an old box of leftover nachos that I plan to discard tonight and said, hey, here, you can have these, that's not a compliment to you. It's an insult. And yet, that's what God's people were doing in Malachi's day. 
They were bringing leftovers. They, they were bringing the blind animals. They were bringing the lame and diseased animals. They're injured animals and offered them as sacrifices to the Lord. Even though God had clearly instructed his people in Leviticus 22 not to bring anything with a defect. To bring the blameless ones, the spotless ones, the pure ones, the perfect ones. Bring your first and your best for the quality of the gift reflects the value that you put on the recipient of the gift. In other words, what I think about you is reflected in how I treat you and what I give to you. In church, because the one that's receiving our worship when we come together as God's people, and not only when we come together, certainly when we come together in corporate worship, but also as we live our lives for His glory, the one that receives our worship because He is a loving Father and a worthy Master and a sovereign King, He deserves our very best. He deserves all of us. And because he is the eternal and omniscient maker of heaven and earth, he knows if we're giving him our best. He knows us, for he knows all. And he wants all of us, for when we don't give him all of us, we are not giving him what is due him. So friend, how would you describe your worship? How would you describe your worship? Does he have all of you? God deserves our first and our best in everything. He deserves the first cut of our paycheck. He deserves the best time of our day. He deserves the the greatest commitment in our schedules. He deserves the supreme position in our minds. He deserves excellence in our service and faithfulness in our devotion. Obedience in all that we do as if we are doing it all for Him. That's worship. Truth be told, you, you may be able to fool your husband or your wife. You may be able to fool your children or your parents or your co-workers or your classmates or your friends or your neighbors. But you cannot fool God. We cannot fool God. Worship is an attitude of the heart. And before God accepts your gift, he inspects your heart. How would he describe your worship? Does he have your heart? Then give him your heart. He deserves all of you. He deserves all of us. And there is nothing more significant. There is nothing more free than to give him all of us. Malachi confronts the priests of his day and he says essentially this. He says, God holds you responsible for allowing this to happen. God holds you responsible for allowing the people to give such poor worship. He says in verse six, he says, it's you priests who show contempt for my name. And to show contempt for the Lord's name is to despise and dishonor his person and his work and his character. This is ongoing disrespect, treating God as if he's no big deal. But as you know, he is a big deal. He's everything. Notice how many times in this passage he describes himself as the the Lord Almighty. There's no one like him. He is worthy of everything. And the priests were allowing the people to give him the unclean things, the unacceptable and unusable and disposable things. But that's not what he deserves. He deserves everything. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. There is nothing without him. He's creator. He's sustainer. He's redeemer. He's the judge and Lord of all. He's the the almighty and he's our advocate. He's the good teacher and the great I am. He's the king of kings and the prince of peace. He's our maker and our mediator, the sovereign and our savior. The point is that he is worthy and he deserves our very best. So how would you describe your worship? Are you giving him your best? The priests in Malachi's day were 
playing games with God. They were going through the motions. They were acting as if this whole system of worship was an inconvenient nuisance to them. Verse 13, and you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. And that word translated burden by the NIV means nuisance. It's only used a handful of times in the Old Testament. It's the same word that's used in Exodus to describe the Israelites' weariness as they traveled through the wilderness. God had become an inconvenience to them rather than a joy. May God never be an inconvenience to us. Friends, may we delight in Him and find joy and satisfaction in serving Him and giving to Him and exalting His name. Participation in worship became an obstacle on the way to other things rather than the thing. And their serving and giving to the Lord was not a joy but a burden. It was a burden because God had become a burden to them. Friend, life without submission to and obedience to the Lord and dependence upon the Lord is a burden. It is. That life without a relationship with Him is not only meaningless and suppressing, but it is also a self-imposed weight that none of us can carry. You and I are not gods. We are not the center of the universe. We are not able to accomplish whatever we set our minds to. We are not in full control of our lives. But He is. He is sovereign. He is the Lord God Almighty. He does hold the world in His hands. And he did cast the stars and the planets into space. He is God over all. And yet, even so, he loves us. He loves us with an unequaled love. He loves us with an unmatched love. He cares for us deeply. He cares for us small creatures who appear for a little while on this earth and then we're gone. He cares so much that He works for our good. He calls us and He saves us and He welcomes us to be His people. He welcomes us into His family. In Jesus, this is what He does for us. He does for us what we can never do on our own. And the truth, praise the Lord, we we, we don't come with animals on Sunday to slaughter. We don't come bearing sacrifices on the altar of the temple in this way because Jesus became and He became the ultimate sacrificial Lamb of God, the perfect spotless Lamb and sacrifice that all these other sacrifices looked forward to and anticipated on the cross of Calvary. He paid the price. And He did this once and for all. He did this, friend, for you because He loves you. And He wants you to be in right relationship with Him for all of eternity and Because of that distinction, perhaps we come to a text like this and we're tempted to read a passage like this and quickly disregard it as inapplicable because of the cessation of this this event, this practice, the cessation of the sacrificial system and the priestly system. But we do still sacrifice in church. We do. We're called to like the Israelites were to do and to do so in response to what God has done for us. We, too, are called to give of ourselves and to do so sacrificially. But if there's no sacrifice in your sacrifice, it's not a sacrifice. By very definition, if there's no sacrifice in your sacrifice, it's not a sacrifice. And this is why Jesus said the widow in the temple courts who gave two small copper coins put in more than all the rich people who went in before her, throwing in large sums of money. This is why in verse 10 here, the, the Lord wanted to shut the temple doors because the crippled and the diseased 
the lame animals were being presented on the altar and they were unacceptable to him. They were no sacrifice. There was no sacrifice. It cost the giver nothing. And the implication was that God meant nothing to them. How would you describe your worship? What does God mean to you? Is your worship sacrificial? As one author says, worship is more than words. It's an attitude of the heart. For when you see God for who He is and what He's done, your worship will be affected. Have you seen God for who He is and what He's done? Do you know the Lord Most High, the one who crafted you together, knit you and me together in our mother's womb, the one who laid out the days of our lives before we were born, the one who made us just the way that we are, the one who all creation owes its existence to? Have you seen Him for who He is? If you acknowledge what he has done for you, what he does for you, but certainly what he's done for you through the cross of Calvary, does your view of God reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel, the good news, joyous news that declares that the author of all life has laid down his life so that you and I could live forever with him. This is what he's done for us. And this is who he is. And because of it, he deserves everything from us. You see, Malachi comes with a difficult message, comes confronting a people for worthless worship, the kind of worship God doesn't want. So what is it he wants? What does it mean to give him meaningful worship, significant worship, worthy worship? What does it mean to give him what he deserves, to sacrifice to him? What are we to offer him? As we bring this truth home, let me mention just a few ways that we're called to sacrifice to him first. Give your body. Give your body to Him. In Romans, Paul says it this way to believers. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Essentially, I think what he's saying here is live out the identity that He has given you in Christ. And use your body for His glory. Give your body, your mouth and your mind, your hands and your feet, your ears, and all your strength in service to God rather than in service to sin. And Paul goes on to state it like this in Romans chapter 12. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says, This is your true and proper worship. Give your body to Him. Church, because in His mercy, Christ Jesus gave His body for you. Gave His life for you. Acceptable and meaningful worship means you give your body and it means you give your money. Give your money. You you give of the resources that God has given to you, the possessions and the dollars that He has entrusted to you. We give generously to His His bride, His beloved, the church, and for His kingdom causes. In Philippians 4, Paul thanks the church, the believers there in Philippi, for doing just that, for giving generously their money to meet His needs in advancing the gospel. This is what he says. He says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. He says, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. He says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. 
He says, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now, don't miss this last sentence. It says, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So what does this mean for us? Church, I think it means as you give cheerfully, as you give generously, as you give sacrificially and willingly to support ministry and the cause of Christ through the local church, your monetary gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So give your body and give your money. And third, give your praise. What else are we to sacrifice? We're to give our praise, offer up your praise to the Lord. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So sing his praises. Believer, declare his greatness and his worth. Recount his blessing and who he is. Give your praise, but praise ought to flow from more than just our lips. It ought to impact our lives. So not only do we give our praise, we're called to give our good works. Deeds, actions that exalt the name of Jesus, that overflow from a life that has been transformed by the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. And do not forget to do good works, to do good and to share with others. To do good works, good deeds. To live a life that honors the name of Christ. Do not forget to do these things. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So sacrifice time and energy for kingdom causes. Things like prison ministry and homeless ministry and mission trips and knitting and sewing to meet the needs of others and helping a neighbor with a construction project or tutoring a classmate or raking leaves for an elderly couple or volunteering at the Christmas gift shop or save a life Shelby or anything of that nature. The list could go on and on. Whatever you do, do good with others. Do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. But church, above all, above everything else, More than your body, more than your money, more than your praise, and more than your good works, God wants you. But He wants your heart. But looks at the heart. Does He have your heart? The truth is, He gave His life for you because He loves you. So, friend, give yourself to Him. Give all of you to Him. Give yourself to Jesus Christ for the glory of Christ. Christ is our example in this. Christ is not calling us to do anything that He has not already done. Our Master is our Savior. And the Son surrendered to the Father out of love for you and me, out of love for us. People who were lost and rebellious and in need of someone to rescue us. And He invites us to respond to who He is and what He's done by living for Him, by giving ourselves to Him and for Him. Ephesians 5, Paul instructs us this way. He says, follow God's example in this way. As dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. As a fragrant offering. And sacrifice to God. The son sacrificed and worshipped the father. In this way out of love for us. So friend give yourself to Christ today. Give all of you to him. 
bow before him and say, Lord, I am yours. Apart from you, I am nothing and can do something. Can do nothing. I am dependent upon you. Save me. I surrender to you. I want to follow after Jesus Christ, the Lord of all and Savior of the world. Give yourself fully to him. Would you bow with me? And Father, may we do that. May we be a people. May this room be full of people today who are giving themselves to you. Father, may we worship you in the way that only you deserve. May we sing of your praises. Or may we give you our hands and feet, our our voice and our hearts. May we give to you of the resources that you have entrusted to us. May we be faithful in serving and following after you, giving of ourselves, giving worship that is worthy of your name. Lord, you are worthy for who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, guide us now as we sing your praise, as we respond with with faith and repentance. May we do so in a way that, that is glorifying to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.